Go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 12. Um, we are, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll notice that our section today, which is going to be verses 22 to 30, stops short of the subtitle. Um, and there's a reason for that. I will address that next week. Sorry, you got to come back for the mystery to be solved. Um, so, uh, have you ever been accused of something outrageous and false? Something that seems so right in the mind of your accuser, yet so disconnected from reality. Jesus knows this feeling well. Um, not just in biblical times, but all across the world right now, countless people are making false claims about him. Uh, whether it's questioning his existence uh, or, or attributing his works of, of grace as unreal, right? Um, or even worse, as works of the devil. Whatever it is, he knows the pains of false accusations and he faces them. Um, Today we're going to see in biblical times a false accusation against Christ and how he responds. Uh, he's going to break the accusation down to the foolishness that it is, which I love when Jesus does that, um, proving, cor proving the corrupt and sinful hearts of his accusers. Um, we're also going to be spending some time looking at the parables he provides as evidence. Um, but my, my intent is that through all of this, we're going to be drawn back to the victorious nature of Jesus's uh, works, because that's what we need to see. That's what, that's what I need to see in Christ today. Um, I, I, need to, I need to look to Jesus in text and in reality of who he is and um, what he does. So let's pray before we read our scripture. Father, I plead with you for the grace that, that, to look and behold your Son. I plead that you would, you would bring us all to your word to be uh, convicted, to be rebuked, to be encouraged, to be admonished, whatever it is that you know we need today as we encounter uh, the reality of the unity in you, the unity in your kingdom, the unity in your goal the unity that's going to be accomplished finally once and for all in the new heavens and new earth. So help us today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Matthew 12, verses 22 to 30. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is the word of the Lord. Verses 22 and 23 contain uh, the situation that exploded or boiled over or uh, became volcanic in the Pharisees' minds and hearts. Uh, there, there were two things that happened, right? The one is that Jesus healed a demonized man, the, the demon-possessed and demon-oppressed in the Greek. Again, as we've established previously, just simply means demonized. So uh, it's ambiguous of the difference between possession and oppression. But, but Jesus healed the demonized man who could neither see nor speak, which is not, it's not unregular for Jesus. Jesus does this all the time, right? But what blew up was, the, was the, the crowds. So the second part of the problem is that the crowds are in awe of Jesus, and they begin asking, can this be the son of David? And the son of David was a messianic term. Uh, Jesus was promised as, as the, the son of David who was going to come, and he was going to conquer, and he was going to restore God's kingdom. And so it's now that, that people are seeing these miraculous events and they're going, can this, can this be him? Can this be the guy? And the Pharisees get jealous. So, uh, so, so instead, of, instead of thinking like, yeah, maybe, maybe this is good news. Maybe this is the gospel. Maybe this is that promise that God made hundreds of years ago, centuries ago, about, about him restoring the kingdom of Israel and restoring this world from its fallen state. Instead of thinking that, they go, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Essentially, what the Pharisees are saying is that he's casting out demons by a greater demon. He's casting out lesser demons by a greater demon. That's why Jesus is able to give one of his parables. Um, and Beelzebub uh, is essentially a transliteration of the Philistine god Be Beelzebub, uh, of Ekron. You can find mention of him in 2 Kings 1-2 if you really want to look there, uh, where a wicked Israelite king sends messengers to reach out to this false god instead of reaching out to the god of Israel. So what's happening is that the Pharisees here, um, since they can't deny Jesus' miraculous works, they can't, at, at this point, it's just too well known. They just can't deny it. So instead of saying, well, this is false, this is all magic, uh, uh, like, you know, trickery, like we would think of magic, instead of, instead of thinking that it's, that it's, you know, card tricks and, uh, and mirrors and smoke, they can't deny that, that, that it's actually happening. So instead, they're trying to charge Jesus as a sorcerer who is condemned to death. They're saying, you're doing this by a false god not the God of Israel. You're doing it by a false God. And it's not actually unusual for Satan to pretend to be benevolent. So, I mean, hey, that's a pretty good charge. The, the magicians in Egypt during the time of Pharaoh and Moses, they were able to replicate some of the miracles. So whether that was by smoke and mirrors or whether that was by, by, by sorcery given by Satan, we know that Satan likes to masquerade as an angel of light, disguise himself as an angel of light, 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, But it's just a disguise. And so, they, so, so they're, they're, they're pointing to something that's possible. 
And this statement could have actually been destructive to Jesus's ministry, could have been destructive to his, uh, to, to his, his mission. And so Jesus responds. But ironically, and this, this is what gets me really about this whole situation, they're charging Jesus of being of Satan, but they're actually standing in the tradition of Satan who's, who, who accuses God of doing wrong. We'll get to that. I, again, full irony, full irony. They are completely oblivious to the fact that they are destructive. It's also worth noting that they've said this before. Uh, if you were to open up way back like nine years ago when we started the sermon series in Matthew chapter 9, that's not true, I've been here a year, um, but, but Matthew chapter 9, 32 to 34, Jesus heals two mute men who were also demonized, and the Pharisees say there too, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So Jesus, this isn't the first time Jesus has heard it, but this is the first time maybe that it's starting to like get its way around, I don't know. But what we can know is that Jesus was slow to rebuke the Pharisees. He was actually laboring with them compassionately. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So in application, sometimes it's best to let false accusations stew in people, not just calling them out initially, uh, but letting satanic accusers show themselves as satanic accusers. Just saying. Um, God's people show themselves as gracious, compassionate, forgiving, but worldly people show themselves to be selfish, divisive, destructive. Now in verse 25, we run into Jesus's response. Uh, we have um, Jesus knowing their thoughts. Um, and by way of, of application, commit it to memory that Jesus knows your thoughts. Jesus knows my thoughts. Jesus knows your thoughts. Jesus knows our thoughts. Jesus knows who's falling asleep in this room. Jesus knows who's thinking about uh, the crockpot meal they're going to be going home to for Father's Day. Jesus, Jesus knows who's thinking about going to Lee's walk after this. That's me, by the way. I'm going to confess that. Um, but Jesus knows our thoughts. The thoughts that you and I have that are sinful that we can conflate and twist to sound righteous when they come out of our mouths. He knows our thoughts and motives, and that's exactly what happened here. Jesus knew the thoughts and the motives of the Pharisees. I mean, I imagine that they're off in the corner whispering about this. Maybe they're whispering only amongst themselves, but the Pharisees were pretty important, so maybe there's some, some onlookers that are kind of pressing their ear into the conversation to hear what the Pharisees have to say. But again, that's just my imagination. All we know is that Jesus knows their thoughts and responds with three parables. The first parable, and by the way, these parables, I think, get stretched a little thin uh, in a lot, of, uh, a lot of sermons. And even one of the commentaries I was reading was really stretching this parable to the point of like, instead of being like a nice, thick piece of, of you know, licorice, it was like uh, fruit roll-up. Thinness, so um, I didn't. I didn't really want to. I'm trying not to do that. So I just want to want to give you a, a, a disclaimer. But the first parable Jesus gives is is found in verse 25. He says, "Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand." That makes sense. Pretty obvious, right? 
In our modern day, if we think about kingdoms, especially in the Western world, frankly, we should be thinking about corporate kingdoms. They're the most successful kingdoms in the kingdom of the United States. I think about, honestly, Google and Apple. Um, they, their unified front is, is really admirable. I mean, that's why churches have so often stolen things from the corporate structure, is we see the success of these, these corporations and we're like, yeah, yeah, we need somebody with a CEO title and a business background. Because those companies demand loyalty from their employees and they don't tolerate division. There's actually a famous story of Steve Jobs, if you remember Steve Jobs, uh, when he was alive and still president of Apple. Um, he gets in an elevator and some poor unsuspecting soul of like an intern or somebody low on the totem pole walks in and recognizes Steve and just tries to look away, right? <laughs> like like uh, Steve had quite a reputation there. Um, and so Steve Jobs turns to the guy, the poor unsuspecting man, and says, uh, says point blank, what's the mission and vision of Apple? At the time, the tagline for Apple was think different. It's not that hard. It's, it's two words, right? The guy could have just said think different. But instead, he, he's under pressure and he kind of stammers and stumbles and forgets and doesn't really know what to say. And so the, they get to the floor that the guy's getting off on, and he tries to escape the elevator, and Steve Jobs puts his arm out, stops him, closes the door, goes back down to the first, and says, you're fired. Well, that's not a Christian example of loyalty. That is what we can expect from ruthless kings in ruthless kingdoms. When we hear the phrase, crush the competition, we tend to think about the corporate world, don't we? But isn't that essentially the goal of like a military campaign is to crush the competition? Except that in that sense, it's firing bullets. So when we, when we hear about united and divided kingdoms, we know that divided kingdoms are going to fail. We know that, that if there's division inside of, of a kingdom, uh, it's just a matter of time before it implodes or explodes, depending on the sort of division. So Jesus uses this parable to describe the ridiculous nature of the Pharisees' charge against him. Well, he's casting out demons by demons. That's dumb. That, that, that would show that a, that a kingdom's divided against itself. Verse 26, and if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? But friends, many, many a church and many a family have experienced this parable. When division causes hostility between a husband and wife, how great is the pain on not only the spouses, but also their children? When divisive individuals come to seek to do harm to the people of Christ, when they strike with a strong hand of accusation and selfishness, how great is the pain on that church? We as a church have experienced that division, not just since I got here, but before. I've heard time and time again of problem after problem after problem creating division and laying waste to the congregation. So when we read this parable, all of us should be thinking of it as something that we've went through. We should be applying it and recognizing, yeah, you're right. You're right. A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. And so this accusation is silly. Just on the outset, it's silly. It's just a jealous response of jealous people 
standing against Jesus. God's kingdom is not divided, as the Pharisees insist. Jesus is not getting power from a foreign deity, but by the power of his father, Yahweh, the true and only God. A second parable leads into that uh, regarding who the Jewish exorcists are casting out demons by. Apparently, there was actually a, a business at the time of itinerant exorcists. Who knew? Um, now, it, 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 would, it, it would appear that the works of Satan at that time were perhaps much more prevalent. I don't really know. I mean, I haven't met an itinerant exorcist. Actually, I take that back. I have met one, but he was on the streets of Chicago and he smelled like booze. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that he wasn't valid. Um, but, but it was prevalent enough that people could actually make a business out of this. And there seemed to be some level of success, right? That they'd be recognized. If we were to open to Acts 19, we'd actually read of a group of exorcists known as the sons, uh, known as the sons of Sceva. They were well known enough to have their name recorded in the Bible. Yeah, that's good advertising, right? Uh, any, any press is good press. Uh, <laughs> but if you were to open it and read it, you'd realize that it's actually really bad press. They, they try to exercise a demon in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, and it doesn't work out well for them. They run away naked. So again, any press is good press. Um, but during Jesus' time in ministry, there, there were some who were casting out demons, but they weren't fully successful. Jesus, however, has a 100% success rate. So, that, I mean, he's really making waves in the Jewish culture. Um, and, and so when Jesus responds in verse 27, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom then do your sons cast them out? That's kind of convicting. Right? Like, hey, what's the method of, of your own kids? And that's actually what he says. He's not just using sons like as a general term. He's actually using familial titles. So I don't know if some of these Pharisees maybe had sons that were exorcists or if it was just kind of like, you know, look at those Jewish exorcists. Yeah, they're doing great things for the kingdom. Yeah, look at that. I don't know what it is, but Jesus is calling them out. What's the method? What's the method that you're, they're using? if I'm suspect. In effect, Jesus is saying, you say that I'm getting power from foreign deities. So how about your sons? Are they getting power from foreign deities? He says in verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Perfect logic. If God's doing this, then God's present. If God's, because wherever God is, there his kingdom is also. Wherever, we, we said this back in Matthew chapter 5. Wherever the king is, so then is the kingdom. So notice how Jesus has compared a kingdom divided with a kingdom united by saying that uh, the kingdom of God is not divided. It's completely unified. It's held together by the eternal union or unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is the perfect ruler in Trinity of his own kingdom. Therefore, if it's one member of the Trinity that's doing these things, then all the members of the Trinity are doing it. Wherever the king is, so is the kingdom. 
God never acts out of the perfect unity of himself. There's never something the son did that the father's like, man, I wish you wouldn't have done that. Uh, there's never, boy, I wish, I wish we could say the same who are fathers, speaking of Father's Day. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then there's, there, there's never anything the Spirit does who proceeds from both the Father and the Son, who comes back, gives a report, and then whoever sent him goes, that is not what I meant. So therefore, to cause disunity between God and his people really has been the role of Satan since the Garden of Eden. And what the Pharisees are saying is that, frankly, their accusations are satanic. Or that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that. If it's by God's spirit that we're going to accomplish God's work of bringing God's gospel to this lost world that is also God's, then we ought to anticipate both satanic hostility and godly victory. The Pharisees here were playing that role of satanic hostility. They were attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. That's the sort of confusion that sinful, satanic-inspired division causes. It starts to doubt the validity of God's kind actions. Therefore, do not let satanic division cause us to lose focus of our goal. What is our goal? What is a Christian's goal? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To take the gospel to this world. That is the root of all goals of Christian, Christian activity. Do not let any satanic division come in. In fact, if it starts to take root in your heart, in your conversations, please, please repent. I have to repent constantly. You know how many, how many, just a, 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 an unmeaning word I've said in my Christian walk where as soon as I say it, I'm like, oh, shoot, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Can I backtrack? No, I'm making it worse. I'm digging that grave even, digger, even deeper. Do not let satanic division take root in your heart, friends. Don't, don't presume that you know the motives of other people. The third parable, our final parable, is the binding of the strong man. Now, there's two ways to interpret this, all right? Um, you'll know which, which side I, I land on here in a minute, but, but Jesus is, uh, is he, all right, Jesus is ambiguous on who the strong man is, all right? But the strong man in this context appears to be a robber. <laughs> so there, there's, there's one view that says um, that, that Jesus is the one binding the strong man, Satan. And Jesus is doing it to go plunder the household of, 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 uh, of Satan. I understand that line of thinking. Like, Jesus is coming and he's announcing his victory, victory over Satan, right? Uh, there's, there's this old phrase where, you know, D-Day has begun, but V-Day is not yet, right? Um, so the battle has started, but it's not yet completely won. Um, so Jesus is still working, and you know we have to keep binding the strong man Satan, who has a grasp on this world. Like I, I, I get that, all right. So if you hold that position when you read these these verses, I'm going to say I'm sorry ahead of time. Um, I think that 
The fact that this person is trying to plunder implies that it's Satan that's trying to bind God and rob God's household because that's kind of what Satan's been doing forever. So bear with me uh, just real quick. Just, just think about that. Um, what Satan has accomplished since the fall is really an attempt to bind God, uh, to try and deceive the, the apex or the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind, to frustrate God's works of preserving and redeeming his people since the beginning. I mean, if you turn up back to Matthew chapter 3, remember the temptation of Jesus. Satan's trying to convince Jesus to go against the unity of, of, of his own unity with the Father and the Spirit. Um, so Satan's been trying to bind the strong man this whole time. But God wins every time. Every single time he intends to secure a victory... You know what happens? He's victorious. And especially when Jesus walked the earth. And that's, that's, that's what's evident in this passage. In the healing of the demonized man in verse 22, in the healings of each and every victim of this fallen world throughout all of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is showing that God will win, that the, that the strong man does not remain bound unless he intends to remain bound. And it's kind of like Samson, right? You, you think of that, that, you know, well, if you bind me with a, with a never used bowstring, then, then, then I, my strength will be gone. But then, of course, people charge in, he just bup, 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 and defends himself. God has shown his ability to win despite the odds over and over again. But Satan, in his wickedness, also attempts to bind God over and over again. In this case, he's trying to turn the people against their king. He's trying to turn the Jews against the son of David. He's trying to turn those that know the covenants and promises against the Messiah they're waiting for. And the Pharisees are his instrument. Satan is the one who comes and tries to plunder God's household again and again. Do, do we... Are we okay with that? Are we, are we, are we just going to be like, yeah, you know what? Sin is really strong, and therefore, you know, other people can repent, but not me. That's one of my favorite ones, right? Like, like you look at everybody else's sin, but then you never acknowledge your own. That's essentially the Pharisees. Churches fall due to satanic divisiveness, of Satan's devices of trying to bind the strong man, which would be God, and plunder his households. This image that Jesus gives us, I think, is representative um, not, uh, not in God's attempt to bind Satan, but in Satan's attempt to bind God. The Pharisees are attempting to bind their opponent. I mean, just on, a, just on a human level, right? Pharisees are just looking at their opponent, and they're saying, yeah, yeah, we can trap him. We'll just spread this rumor. He's doing it by the power of Beelzebub. They're trying to undermine Jesus' authority. They're making false accusations. And that, friends, is exactly how Satan works against, his, against the kingdom of God. Do not be the one who seeks to plunder the household of God like the Pharisees. 
Don't try to bind up God's, the servants of God's kingdom from doing gospel work. And that brings us to our final verse and, and real focus of all these parables. Whether in the church, the business world, or wartime, many have taken this final statement of Jesus and misappropriated it to themselves. So, this, this is, this, all right. When Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I can't say that of me. There are many who are not with me, but they're not actually against me either. We call them fence sitters. <laughs> they sit on the fence watching the game, but they never really join. That is different than the person on the other side of the fence lobbing baseballs at the team. But the exclusivity of Jesus' kingdom allows this statement to be completely true only in Jesus. So I am not saying get on the boat or go to another boat. That is not what I'm saying. And I don't think that's what this verse is saying. But I know, I know pastors who have applied this. I know bosses who have applied this. The focus of this verse is on Christ. You are either with him or you're against him. There is only one God. Somebody who worships Buddha is just not godly. They are just, well, they don't really worship Buddha. They do. It, anyway, I know the distinction. Uh, <laughs> but but somebody, somebody who practices the Baha'i faith, which is a universalist, very popular 1970s funky cult, somebody who practices the Baha'i faith does not worship God. Therefore, they are against him. But that is, but that is not the same thing as me saying, do what I say or get out the door. Don't take it in a, in, a, in a worldly manner, please. Please don't hear me saying that. What set off the Pharisees again was that question raised, can this be the son of David? That's what set them off. Jesus is that promised son of David. Jesus is the one who, who's the conquering king who's coming to, who came to redeem the world. The one who removes false accusations, who, who opposes Satan and all his schemes, which, by the way, Satan's name, what does it mean? It means accuser. So Satan has one, one job, and his name, is, his, his name is indicative of it. It's to accuse God of doing wrong. So Jesus stands against him. He's the promised salvation. Therefore, be with him on his side. Do not be against him. Gather with him. Do not scatter, but stay with Christ. Do not be the one who makes false accusations against his work. Be slow to assume. Oh my gosh, I so, I so, I so want to... Everybody knows what it means to assume. Anyway, <laughs> I can't swear from the pulpit. Anyway, <laughs> but, but, but be slow to assume. Be slow to, to, to have a harsh hand. Be like Christ who takes false accusations a number of times before finally confronting them. 
And look at the situation from the beginning. There's a man blind. He's unable to see the glory of God. He's unable to see this world that was created. And he's mute. He's unable to, to speak. He's unable to communicate. He's unable to pray. He's unable to praise. He's brought to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He opens his eyes and loosens his tongue. He shows his character and compassion and kindness. And for all we know, this dude then went off. And like most of us, Paul, Paul as, as James says, point out that the tongue is a flaming fire with the, same, with the same instrument. We praise God and we curse him all at the same time. We curse his people. Actually, I'm pretty sure that ended up happening because he's human. He's fallen. But for all we know, this person didn't serve Christ but he was a benefactor of Jesus' compassion. But Satan, seeing an opportunity to employ his servants, the Pharisees, to attack Christ, to try and steal the glory, but Christ responds by not sharing his glory with another, by, by, by pointing out that this accusation from the Pharisees is false, it's satanic, it's divisive, it's stupid, without using those words. He proves in a wonderful act of redemption that this man was worth suffering these accusations. So are you blind to God's glory? Are you like the man in the beginning who's, who's blind and can't see, uh, who's, who's mute and just unable to praise? Do you need to run to Christ and ask him to, to fix you, to, to heal you, to help you in a spiritual sense? Then run to Christ. Or are you like the Pharisees, filled with accusations against God's servants, instead of a knowledge of your own sin and need of repentance. Work with Christ instead of against Christ. Do not cause division in this church or any other. Do not cause division in your own family. Do not cause division, if at all possible, but instead stand willing to take false accusations for the glory of God. If you're trying to plunder the house to make God's work fail, or even worse, ascribing to Satan the power of God, then repent. Repent. But you need to be working for unity. Unity in God's kingdom. God is not divided. Well, he is. Three, three persons and one being. Anyway, but, <laughs> but God is unified in his effort to bring the gospel to the nations. Following him means getting on the board or getting on board the boat or scattering. Nothing else. Follow after Christ. Let's pray. Father, by nature, we want to cause division. By nature, we are fallen and we have our own selfishness that, that clouds our own thoughts, our own actions. Uh, we want to we defend ourselves against false accusations. We don't want to be patient to those who are struggling. We are sinful, fallen people in need of a, of, of a glorious God to come and rescue us and help us. And that God is you. May we come after you. May we follow you. May we, may we, 
May we seek after you. May we rely on you. May we be more like the blind and mute man who goes to you and says, fix me. Or like the, the, the centurion who says, help my unbelief. May we stand unified in our effort to praise and adore you. To bring your gospel to Toledo. To bring your gospel to Lincoln County. That is why we exist. Our one purpose to make disciples of you. Unify us in that effort, O oh Lord. May we march together under your banner and nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen.